The following episode contains several depictions of substance abuse and corporal punishment. Listener discretion is advised. I didn't have money to to get drugs. Okay, so instead of heroin, I took pills. It really screws up your thoughts, the way you think. All right, not not the other form of drugs don't, but more so for pills. And I went to a friend. Okay, and she told me she she had some stuff with her. I smoked a bit of the heroin, but I told her I said I need money for my next fix. I need money for my next fix, and I don't have the money. I said I'm going to rob, and she advised me, Hey, Bruce, don't, don't. Don't, all right. I'll try see what I can do, you know, to find you your next fix. But you don't go and rob. But I didn't listen to her, so I went to a shop at Serangoon, Little India, going to buy something. So when the guy opened the tilt, and I saw a stack of fifty dollar notes there, my mind just snapped, just like that. Yeah, and I did the deed. Welcome to Screwed Up Moments, the podcast where it's okay to fail and it's okay to try again. I'm your host, Danny. In 2003, Mr. Shamugam Sam Murugesu, a former national jet ski champion who had previously served in the Singapore Army for eight years, was sentenced to death when he was found to be carrying 1.03 kilograms of cannabis while crossing the Singapore-Malaysia border. In 2002, Mr. Nguyen Thuong Van, an Australian citizen, was arrested and charged with the death penalty for trafficking 396.2 grams of heroin while transiting through Singapore, an amount that was 26 times the minimum necessary for the punishment. More famously, or rather controversially, in 1991. The Dutch national Johannes van Dam was arrested for possessing 4.32 kilograms of heroin in his suitcase. Upon his arrest, he claimed that he was merely holding the suitcase for a friend and that he had no idea of what was in it. Despite appeals from both the Dutch Foreign Ministry and the Queen Beatrix of the Netherlands, the authorities in Singapore nonetheless proceeded to execute Mr. Van Dam in 1994. As these cases show, Singapore takes a really hardline stance when dealing with drugs, from hefty fines and lengthy sentences for minor possession to the death penalty for trafficking charges. It is a stance that strikes fear and deterrence into potential abusers, which has led the country to gain a sort of brutish reputation abroad. The most notable example being science fiction author William Gibson describing Singapore as "quote unquote Disneyland with the death penalty." However, amidst all the controversy, what is arguably left behind is the perspective of the abusers themselves: how they got involved with drugs, whether they were afraid of the punishments, how their lives were affected, and so on. In this episode, we are privileged to be able to share just one slice of this perspective, thanks to our guest Bruce Matthew, someone who had dealt with drug addiction for the better part of 30 years. Hi, 
My name is Bruce, and this is my screwed up moment. I am 50 this year. I am now working in a cafe called The Living Well. This cafe was started in order to give ex offenders a chance to seek employment so that they can not only um, feed themselves, but also their families. And this cafe was also created so that um, ex-offenders can come to voice their problems and plight that they face in society without having to face prejudice. Mm. It is also the um, cafe's hope that we can create an environment of distraction for our beneficiaries so that those who are working there can look forward to a better and brighter future. So how long have you been working at the cafe? I have been there for more than a year already. And what is the experience like for you? Honestly, ups and downs. But what I really do love about the cafe is that I'm the brand ambassador. So I do go about sharing about the cafe, what we do, our beneficiaries, and, you know, my screwed up moments in life. (laughs) So I understand that your story goes back a long way back to your childhood. It does. So could you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah. Sure. Um, I was brought up in a single parent family. I am the only child. So as such, my mom, um, being a single parent, she had to work uh, all the time. So by the time she comes home, it would be very late. And being an only child, I felt very lonely. And at the age of 12 or 13, I went out to look for my peers, right, mm. to look for company. And I looked for them in the wrong places. So at the age of 13, I joined a gang. And about three months into it, I was introduced to my first steak of marijuana. Mm. Yeah. And you, you know what happened during my first experience, Danny? Mm, what happened? I absolutely loved that high. I guess being an only child, growing up very lonely, you know, and um, drawing my first stick of weed and letting that high overwhelm my whole being, you know. I feel like I'm floating on cloud nine. You know, this sort of feeling was, was something very new to me and I absolutely enjoyed it. But you know, you know, the sad thing is this. It is because I absolutely enjoyed that high that was the beginning of my problems that lasted for 30 years. Hmm. Yeah. I, I think I forgot about the cat. You know about the cat? No. Curiosity. <laughs> Do you remember where you were when you had that first high? How can I ever forget? Mm. Yeah, I was in this uh, place called Siglap. There used to be a wet market where there's, I think it's now called Siglap Centre. And I was uh, opposite it at a playground. That was where I, I took my first take of marijuana. It was in the evening, I presume. Yeah, it was in the evening. Mm. But I, I guess in the 80s, um, people didn't really care much about it. You know, they took weed when, as and when they, they liked. Really? Yeah, and the thing was, my gang... At that point in time in the 80s, uh, they were one of the major players in the trafficking of marijuana. 
So I could get my fix 24-7. And the best part of all, absolutely free. Best or worst part of all, absolutely (laughs) free. So were you just consuming or were you like selling and distributing? I I was just consuming. Yeah, the the strange thing was at a very young age, I, I always tell myself, Bruce, you can take drugs, but you cannot sell it. I, I don't know why. I, I always have this this thought in me. Hmm. Yeah. I guess now looking back, you know, it was it was God's way of preserving my life. Because you you know in Singapore we have a zero tolerance drug policy. Yeah. Right? And if you traffic drugs That's it for you. Yeah, you're screwed. Yeah. After a certain amount, you get a capital punishment. Even if it doesn't exceed the limit, what will happen is for the rest of your life you will be under surveillance. Yeah. Yeah. Let's just say that um, you wouldn't be sitting here today if you were yes. selling. <laughs> what, in your opinion, do you think the gang fulfilled for you personally? Like, why did you keep going going there, uh, you know, hanging out with them, doing all these things? I guess gang, during then, uh, what they did was they filled up a void that was in me. That void was loneliness. Mm. I didn't have any siblings. You know, my mom was away most of the time. Um, I used to live with my uncle and aunties. They weren't the best of relatives to live with. A lot of them were abusive. And I always get the, I always got it from them, you know, when I came home drunk or, or anything. Yeah. So I guess my environment played a part in me being violent in my teenage years too. Hmm. So um, I want to go back to talking about the drugs again, right? Sure. So, ever since that first high, mm. right, how did that develop? Like, did you, were you consuming on like a very frequent basis? Uh, you know, was it like a full-blown addiction? What was it like for you? Now, I'd like to state explicitly here that the intention of this episode is not to try and sympathize or justify drug use. The goal of this episode is merely to present the perspective of an often underrepresented voice. Drug use, of course, has many different sides, from medical benefits and therapeutic use to life-changing dangers and addictions. We can only advise that you be careful if you choose to consume, for as Bruce will share shortly about his 30-year ordeal, it can have severe consequences. Like I was saying earlier, my gang had a foothold in the marijuana trade in Singapore. So I could get my hands on it 24-7 and I absolutely did not have to pay for it. Hmm. So as such, I was consuming it, I think, very regularly, sometimes even on a daily basis for hmm. an extended period of time. But by the age of 14, I had graduated to heroin. Hmm. And by the age of 15, I was already addicted to heroin. Yeah. So in between my marijuana and heroin, I... I also took pills, you know, sleeping pills, tranquilizers, yeah. And at this point, were you like afraid of the police or, or getting caught or anything? I mean, Danny, when we are young, we feel invincible, <laughs> right? I mean, at the age of 14 or 15 even, I will tell myself, if I get caught, most of us I go into prison for a short period of time. Right, when I right. come out, I'm still in my teens, right? right? So fear was, was never really in me. What happens is, is when you start taking heroin and you're addicted to it, your body does a 180-degree change. Hmm. When you're addicted, you don't have heroin, you can't go to work, 
right? Because you get the shakes, you know, runny nose and everything. But if you do get your fix, your mind will start asking, how am I going to get my next fix? Where am I going to get the money to get my next fix? Which supplier am I going to find to get my next fix? All right, all this will come into, all these questions will come into play. And only after you have taken them, then you would contemplate going to work, mm. right? But here lies the problem. How do you work when you're high? So more often than not, people who are addicted to heroin, they will resort to crimes or trafficking drugs just to sustain their lifestyle. Can you tell us about the first time you were arrested? What happened? Okay, the first time I was arrested, I was on heroin and pills. So when you are when you do take pills, the strange thing is this: you like to take things. Hmm. Yes. Okay. All right. You 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 sort of like become a kleptomaniac. <laughs> okay. You just want to take something. So what happened to me was I I believe it was 1992. I walked into a shop. I saw a tie that I liked. I took the tie and I walked out. Not because I didn't have money to pay for it. I just walked out. And I was arrested for theft. And then they found drugs on me. So I was charged for theft and possession of drugs. So when I went to prison for the first time, that was the very first time I was away from my mother for an extended period of time. So one would think that the first thing you do when you come out of prison is to go and visit your mother, you know, uh, catch up on those months that you're away, right? That wrong. The first thing I did when I came out of prison was to hail a cab, went to my uh, supplier, got high on heroin. And then I went home. When I got home, my mom looked at my face. She knew I was high. She was so angry with me. I went for a total of one urine test. I tore my cut and I went on the run again. shortly after that I was arrested for the second time and that was for robbery I didn't have money to to get drugs okay so instead of heroin I took pills it really screws up your thoughts the way you think all right not not the other form of drugs don't but more so for pills and I went to a friend okay and she told me she she had some stuff with her I smoked a bit of the heroin but I told her I said I need money for my next fix. I need money for my next fix. And I don't have the money. I said, I'm going to rob. And she advised me, hey, Bruce, don't, don't, don't. All right, I'll I'll try and see what I can do, you know, to find you your next fix. But you don't go and rob. But I didn't listen to her. So I went to a shop at Serangoon, Little India. I went to buy something. So when a guy opened the tilt and I saw a stack of $50 notes there, my mind just snapped. Just like that. Yeah, and I did the deed. So so what did you do? Did you like pull the guy I, over the counter? Or? No, I just grabbed the money. All right, took out my knife, grabbed the money and I wanted to flee. But of course, being being at Little India, you are surrounded by a lot of people. <laughs> so I, I couldn't run very far. <laughs> so so could you um, tell us about how you felt when you were caught for the second time? What was going through your head? Uh, at the moment when I was caught, Absolutely nothing Because Mm. I was still high on drugs But when I woke up 
and the lockup cell in, in the police station, when reality really hit me, I told myself, oh boy, Bruce, what have you got yourself into? Hmm. And when on hearing day, when uh, the judge said 40 months and 12 strokes of the cane, um, of course, I felt panic run through my body. It wasn't about the 40 months. It was more of the 12 strokes of the cane. Hmm. I mean, we have all heard gashly stories of, you know, how painful strokes can be, right? Yeah. So I wasn't prepared for it at all. Hey, listeners. Before we continue, I'd like to take a quick moment to share another local podcast from Singapore. It's called SG Explain. They're a pretty cool show where they try to explain concepts and ideas unique to Singapore in a very informal discussion format that's both rich in information and easy to digest. They've been around for a while and they've reached out to me to do like a cross-promotion thing and they've even sent me a snippet about their show. So here it is. And to those coming from SG Explained, hello and welcome to Screwed Up Moments. Wondering about what Singapore was like before Raffles came? How about the data around dating and why we may not be so hopeless in love after all? Or maybe you're lost about CPF and need an explainer about how it works. Being Singaporean isn't just about holding the passport. Join us on SG Explained, a regular podcast that gives you the lowdown about what it's like living on the red dot. Every episode, Elliot and I, there's Rovic for y'all, tackle a new institution, historical episode or phenomena and explain it uninvited commentary included. You'll be the smartest person at your next party, we swear. Give us a listen on all podcast platforms, including Spotify and Apple Podcasts. In case you forgot, that's SG Explained. See you there. All right, now back to the episode with Bruce Matthew. For those who are unfamiliar, caning has been a pretty established form of corporal punishment in Singapore ever since it was introduced during the times of British colonial rule. While mainly serving as a disciplinary measure for male convicts, it is also a legal form of punishment for servicemen in the Singapore Armed Forces and even in schools as well, albeit in a milder form. Caning is typically performed with a rattan stick measuring no more than half an inch in diameter and about four feet in length. Officers who administer the punishment are specially selected based on their physique and physical prowess, and notable cases include that of the infamous Michael Fay an American citizen who had received four strokes of the cane in 1994 for theft and vandalism when he was just 18 years old. He would remark that the caning left him with three dark brown scar patches on his right buttock and four lines on the left. Safe to say then that Bruce's sentencing of 12 strokes would be on an entirely different level. When I went into prison, mentally I was trying to prepare myself for my strokes. There were a lot of people coming up to comfort me. Um, they would say, hey, Bruce, take it easy. Lah. Don't don't worry about the strokes. All right? It's only pain. You know, you can get over it. Then there, was, there was another guy who came up to me and said this. He said, Bruce, I've taken strokes before. Listen to me. Okay? The first few strokes will be painful. Okay? But after the third or fourth stroke, your backside will be numb already. So much so you cannot feel the pain. I can't really recall who that person is. And I don't believe... I've met him after my release, but how I wish I could, so I can slap him. It was totally untrue. Dude, it was totally untrue. When I was strapped to that A-frame, and the caner like swung his forefoot rotan from like six feet away and took two steps and whipped the first lash on my backside. I felt like someone had used a big piece of log 
and slam it on my butt. Mm. And this is what I told myself. If the pain is like that, 12 strokes will be a piece of cake. <laughs> because the pain was very blunt. You know, one would think that it's like, you know, your, your mother caning you or your father caning right. you. No, the pain felt blunt. Okay. Then came the second stroke. So first stroke was in the middle of your butt. The second stroke can either be on top or below. I, I can't recall where it landed. But when the second stroke landed, I told myself, wow, the pain has gone up a bit, but still very bearable. The word is very bearable. Hmm. Then came the third stroke. Pain meter went up, but still I, I told myself, Bruce, you can take it. Then came the fourth stroke. Guess where the fourth stroke landed? In the middle again. On the first stroke. Oh, wow. So when, when the rotan lands the first time on your skin, it softens your skin. And then when the stroke starts landing in the same spot, that is where your skin will tear. So I believe it was by the seventh stroke, uh, my muscles couldn't take it anymore. So much so that my thighs started spasming. Wow. Yeah, automatically. And you were bleeding already, I presume. I was bleeding, of course I was yeah. bleeding. But you know what the worst thing is? You know, in, in prison, we have this unwritten rule. If you do belong to a gang, that is. Mm. When you take strokes, you are not supposed to say anything. Hmm. You're not even, ah, nope. You have to keep very quiet. I, I guess it's their brand of, I don't, I don't know, machismo or something. <laughs> So through the entire time, you didn't say... No, I didn't say anything. I had to grit my teeth. Wow. My goodness. How how long were you unable to sit <laughs> for um, after that? Unable to sit. Well, because the strokes would land heavily on one side of your butt than the other. So it landed heavier on the left cheek. So if I wanted to sit, I could actually sit on my right, ah, right cheek, okay. cheek butt. But it, it's not about sitting is about sleeping huh. I had to sleep face down because you know it's very painful right but the thing is when you do sleep you will turn you don't know but you will turn right yeah so I still remember the first night I slept I woke up the next morning alright I was facing up I told myself oh no you know why mm. because my pants has stuck to my wounds oh no <laughs> oh no yes and oh the, no! And the wounds were still pretty fresh. At yeah, that time. but it had dried up overnight. You know, right? Oh so I had my. to like peel the pen slowly off my wounds. So when you peeled, your wounds would, would break again, and then the whole thing would start. Oh my gosh! As you can tell from Bruce's very graphic account of his experience of caning, it really, really hurts. In fact, despite the controversy surrounding this arguably archaic method of punishment, you have to admit that it kind of works with regards to deterrence. I, for one, certainly wouldn't want to find myself in a position where my fresh buttock wounds are stuck to my pants. And on the whole, if you look at how the number of caning sentences has steadily declined over the years, you could say that the majority of people in Singapore agree as well. So, given 40 months in prison and 12 very painful strokes of the cane, you would expect Bruce to turn over a new leaf, right? Give up drugs for good, rebuild relationships with his family, find stable work, and live happily ever after. Cue the ending music. But sadly, that's not what happened here. Drug addiction can often be a very messy and complicated affair. And in Bruce's case, his ordeal with substance abuse was far 
from over. So you 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 served the was it three and a half years? Three and a half years. Then yeah. after I came out, um, I worked for like a year. After a year, I started taking drugs again. Hmm. Then shortly after taking drugs, I went on a run because during my last urine test, the results came up positive. So they put me on bail. I, I knew that the next time I reported to the police station, they would arrest me and throw me in prison. Mm. So what I did was I went on the run. Right? And, and when you're on the run, you, you can't actually work, right? You have to do crazy stuff. Mm. Uh, I was hooked up with a syndicate that did passports. Oh. Uh, after doing that for like, I think it was six months, I was caught. When I was arrested, for this crime I had a very big cut on my finger so they had to bring me to SGH to get my wounds tended to so the police who escorted me thought I was high alright and when I was wheeled into the operation theatre he made a mistake he didn't handcuff me to the gurney hmm yeah so when I opened my eyes I saw no policeman down there I did a runner And then in order to escape, I jumped from the third floor. Out of the window. Out of the window. I tell you, thank God I didn't break anything. But what happened to me was I sprained my ankle and my back very badly. Then I tried, I, I, I ran down. You know, SGH is like on top of a hill kind yeah. of thing. I, as I was running, I f was flagging for taxis. I was only wearing the hospital gown, you know. I was covered in blood. So I was flagging for taxis. No one stopped for me. So when I couldn't run anymore, I hid behind the bushes. So there was a big man hunt for me. And then, of course, after about an hour or half an hour or so, they found me. When they found me, Danny, oh, I was beaten up very badly. <laughs> very badly. Yeah. This time they didn't care that you had like a sprained back or they, ankle. They didn't care because I, I got one of their, their colleagues into big trouble. Disciplinary action will be taken against him because yeah. he failed to, to do his duty right right mm. wow <laughs> yeah. so for that altogether I remember I had like 38 charges but out of the 38 they only proceeded with 7 or 8 uh, for that I got 6 years and 6 strokes of the cane so what was your mindset going to prison for the third time third time was Bruce you are gonna go in for the long haul <laughs> I expect honestly I expected more Mm. Okay, my lawyer told me to stand by at least eight years. Mm. At least, yeah. But um, I got six years instead, which of course I'm very happy. Uh, during my six years, uh, I mean during my time in prison, you know, it, I mean for the first four times when I was in prison, um, there, there wasn't really a plan, okay? A uh, plan of what I'm going to do when I come out, you know. I will, when I when I'm released, you know what happens. K Sarah Sarah, you know what will be will be, you know. But what was always in the back of my mind is this: when I come out, that is when I can start my party again, mm. right? So every time I come out, I would start taking drugs, either the first day or shortly after that. The fourth time uh, I came out, it wasn't very much of a difference. Mm. I got involved with drugs, but I was never caught for. Five years. Wow. So this was uh, still heavy consumption almost on a regular he basis. It was heavier than before. <laughs> heavier. Right. Yeah. So um, 
during just before my last imprisonment, I took meth. Now, I was very heavy into it, very heavy into it. Um, a day alone, I was smoking more than a gram of meth. Basically, really screwed me up in many ways. Yeah. So before I before I went into prison, I was I was doing both legal and illegal business. I had a lot of money. I could buy everything that I so desired. You know, I had car, I had like four or five watches, you know, Rolexes, Jaeger Lacoos and all that, you know. I mean, the strange thing is this, no, Danny. If I were to compare what I earned then and now, what I earn now is only a fraction of what I used to earn. Mm. You know, not even 10% of what I used to earn. Not even close. Mm. Okay. Previously, although I could buy everything I want, I did not have everything I needed in life. But now that I'm earning way less than what I used to earn, and I cannot buy everything that I want, but I do have everything that I need. Hmm. Don't you think life can be so ironic? Over the course of this episode, we have followed Bruce on his journey from lonely teenager to fully grown adult. We've been through his numerous run-ins with the law, his various stints in prison, his painful punishments, and his constant reversions back to drug addiction. At this point, it's hard not to feel sorry for him. His drug addiction didn't seem like it was much of a choice anymore. Rather, it was an affliction or a lifelong curse determined to ruin any good thing that he had worked so hard to build up. After coming out the fourth time, the only money I had was like a thousand over dollars on me that I had earned during my stay in prison. Um, so I went for job interviews. All of them would say this, don't call us. We might call you, but they never did. So after three months, my money was totally exhausted. I still remember that night, I only had $10 left on me. I didn't know what to do with the $10. To buy food or to buy cigarettes or to uh, take a taxi home with it or what? You know, that was my only $10 left. Um, during then, I, I have a friend who owned a pub. And after my release, he had bought me a bottle and, you know, left in the pub and said, Bruce, whenever you want to drink, just come down and drink. So that night, you know, I was, I felt very down. I went there, took my bottle out, started drinking. So he saw me, he looked at me, he said, what's up with you? You know, you, you don't look good. So I explained my situation to him. So he thought about it. He said, okay, tomorrow you come to work. We need to hire a bouncer. Yeah. So I started on a $60 per day salary. In that one year that I worked down there, I saved a bit of money. And not only did I save, a customer had actually headhunted me to work for the company that he was being employed in. All right. And when I went over there, I became a manager. And then I started a business on my own. Then after that, I went, you know, when you got a bit of extra cash, I started doing illegal things. Okay. The sad thing about people like us is, is when we have a lot of cash on us, our minds will start going amok. Okay, we start thinking of ways how to enjoy ourselves, and my only form of enjoyment then is drugs. As you can probably guess by now the downward spiral would again repeat itself. 
Bruce would lose focus at his business, get cheated out of hundreds of thousands of dollars by his partner, and he would even start gambling, where he would go on to lose close to half a million dollars in savings over the span of several months. Fortunately, however, I can say that there will be a light at the end of the tunnel, but in order for Bruce to get there, he had to first endure what he described as being the worst moment of his life. That was the worst. That was the worst, right? Um, when I went to prison, I was sentenced to LTA, long-term imprisonment for drugs. They sentenced me to five years and nine months. So seeing that I have to face a, a very long sentence, of course, I felt sad. But what made it even sadder was the fact that my very last time in prison was very different from first four. I was married and I had, I have a daughter. For the longest time, all I wanted in life, really wanted in life, was to have a family of my own. And I always told myself this, Bruce, if you have a family, you must not be an absentee father, just like yours. And then what happened? I myself became an absentee father. All right. I can safely tell you this, Danny, without shame. First day till my last day in prison, Every single day, I missed my daughter tremendously. There were many nights I cried myself to sleep from missing her. Mm. Right? And I say this unashamedly. So there was this particular event that happened that really woke me up. It happened in April of 2013. So that was very close to me being in prison one year already, 11 months actually. So during my last imprisonment, my wife would often bring my daughter to visit me once every month. So on that particular day when she came to visit in April, that day was very special. Because that day was my daughter's four-year-old birthday. Hmm. Yeah. So she had on a brand new dress that my wife had bought for her. And my daughter was so proud of that dress that when she stepped into the cubicle, she started to parade herself. You know, and when, when she sat down, I sang her birthday song. So all the three of us were singing and clapping and we were all so very happy. And then at the end of the song, my daughter looked at me with those big innocent eyes and she said, Dada, Carrie. Hmm. I tell you, Danny, when she said that, my heart absolutely dropped. I did not know what to do. Then my daughter looked at me quizzically and she said again, Dada, Carrie. I mean, I was in prison. There was a glass in front of you. What can I do? So what I did was I shook my head. Hmm. When she saw me did that, Danny, she cried her head off and she bawled, I want to go home, I want to go home. In all my years in prison, I never missed one visit. There was this one particular time in the 90s, my mom had breast cancer, but she discharged herself so that she could come and visit me. Hmm. Right. But that visit, I never got to finish. Because my daughter was crying so uncontrollably, my wife had to bring her and leave because she was affecting the other inmates having their visits. So that was the, that was the day I told myself, Bruce, call it a day. Lah. All right. Really call it a day. Your heart cannot take that kind of pain anymore.
Because for the first time uh, in 30 years, you know, I had finally found the motivation to change. There were many times um, during my life I tried to stop drug taking. But I can tell you right now, I failed each and every time I tried. Hmm. So I, I spent a bit of time thinking about it. What can I do? What can I do? I was very motivated to change. But I know I cannot change. All right? I lack the strength. So I did the only thing that I felt would work. And that was to rededicate my life back to God. I, I'm a Christian. Hmm. When I did that, I'd finally found the strength to change. So my daughter, my motivation, my God, my strength. So in prison, I mean, I knew that in three years' time I was going to go out. But I also know that I have to prepare myself, you know. So I, during my last three years, I took steps into ensuring that my goal was met. So what I did was, first step, I did a, a public gang renouncement. Hmm. All right, and that is not easy, you know. <laughs> Secondly, I signed up for Bible study classes, and I also took up a family bonding courses in prison. Before I got out of prison, what happened was I was placed on a three-month program at Teen Challenge Singapore. Being there, it helped me to bond with my family after my long period of absence, and it had also allowed me to reintegrate back into society at a, at a slower and steadier pace. And it was also during my stay there that I had developed a burden for those who had been in my shoes. That was why I joined Teen Challenge shortly after my release as a care worker. And I really feel very blessed to say that in the 14 months that I was able to serve there, I had used all the negativity that was in my life and turned them into positive ones to help, encourage and most of all to impact the lives of other individuals who share the same addiction problems as I do. Hmm. Although I have been out of Teen Challenge already, the mission is still the same. All right, I made it my life's mission to share my story with others so that they can be benefited from it and not have to experience go or go through the same experiences that I did. Yeah. So currently, I, as I've said earlier, I work in a cafe called The Living Well. We are located at the annex walkway of Tan Tok Seng Hospital. <laughs> Please do pay us a visit, all right? If you're in the vicinity, even if it's just to say hello, it would really mean a lot to us. I am a volunteer with the CMB, Central Narcotics Bureau. I do preventive drug education with them. I am volunteers with Teen Challenge Singapore, of course, and I'm also a prison volunteer. Oh. Got my permanent prison pass already. Oh. Yeah. I'm already 50. Um, there's only so much energy I have left in me. And I want to use all this energy to benefit others. All right. To tell them, don't take drugs. If you have not tried, don't take it. Okay. Don't screw up your life like how I did. I'm a bright person. Okay. And I know I could have gone very far in terms um, academically, all right, if I wanted to. But drugs came into the picture, then, you know, my life got screwed. So I just asked myself, what if they had all this back then? Would my life be very different? But then I guess it's an answer that I will never get, right? Yeah. But then life still goes on. 
And so with that brings the end to this episode of the Screwed Up Moments podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in and much, much thanks to Bruce Matthew for sharing his amazing story. You know, in today's media landscape, you often find that drug-related stories can be extremely dehumanizing, to the point where all that tends to be covered is the crime and punishment that follows. With this episode, I hope that I have at least helped to broaden that scope just a tiny bit. This is not to necessarily glorify or shame drug use, but just to remind everyone that behind the addiction, there is a person. Someone with hopes and dreams, successes and failures, and fears and ambitions just like any one of us. And I'm proud to have been able to host such a conversation on this platform. With that being said, the Screwed Up Moments podcast is brought to you by the Singaporean Social Enterprise Happiness Initiative, an organization that advocates for happiness and well-being through their message that happiness is a choice. Production and editing was done by me, Danny Cordy, on behalf of Fable Productions. Episode music was sourced from Blue Dot Sessions, and the theme song was composed by Rico Lowe. If you enjoy listening to the Screwed Up Moments podcast, you can help out the show by sharing it amongst your friends or by subscribing and leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Otherwise, if you have any questions, suggestions, feedback, or if you have your own Screwed Up Moments story to share, you can drop us a message through the email dkoorti at fableproductions.com or through the various social media links in the description. Once again, this has been your host, Danny, for the Screwed Up Moments podcast, reminding you that it is okay to fail and it is okay to try again. Thank you for listening. <laughs>